Looking for your next TV show or movie to binge? Well, buckle up, grab the remote, and settle into your couch for this special edition of Crossing the Streams. We're here to help you tune in and get the most out of those 50 monthly streaming channels you're currently paying for. So without any further ado, here's your host of Crossing the Streams, Jeff Dwoskin. hey oh, it is I, Jeff DeWaskin, your host from Classic Conversations, bringing you this fantabulous bonus episode pulled from our live show, Crossing the Streams, which is live every Wednesday, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Crossing the Streams, answering the universal question, what should I be binge-watching next? I just finished something, and now I gotta watch something else. Well, you've come to the right place because we're about to feed three suggestions right into your ears. And if you need more, head over to YouTube. Over 83 hours of live Crossing the Stream shows, chock full of binge-watching suggestions await you. So check that out. But right here, right now, we got Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street, The Bear, and Dying Laughing. Three fantastic opportunities for you to sit on the couch and binge. These segments are pulled from our live show. Our live show is a collection of my friends sitting around talking about shows that we love. You're listening in. Hopefully you'll love it too, and then you'll check it out. All right, let's check with frequent guest Mick Manhattan of the Scene Snobs. He's going to tell us a little bit about The Bear. All right, let's go into hopefully a pick-me-up with The Bear. Is that Barry Manilow in the picture there? I don't think the bear is about Barry Manilow. It's not a pick me up. No, it's, <laughs> it's 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 in the vein of uh, oddly enough because the main actor Jeremy Allen White is from Shameless, but sort of in that same vein where it's dramatic. It has dramatic elements, but it, it can be funny. It comes off as a uh, FX show. I, I swear to God, it was on FX, but I guess it was Hulu original. But I know they own FX now, so uh, oh. I guess that's why it came out that way. But it's this show. Uh, Jeremy Allen uh, White, who played Lip on Shameless, is in this. He plays Carmi. Uh, he is. It was like a nationwide, like well-respected chef in the best restaurant in the country, and he ran the chef. Uh, he ran it. And he was that chef. But his brother, who ran like a beef sandwich shop in chicago it was like a famous beef sandwich shop in chicago uh that was kind of run down and just like family business uh he kills himself you do not see that that comes into play later but carmy inherits everything and goes to run it leaves the whole uh lifestyle behind and he goes back and uh he starts running it and he wants to do it differently his brother never let him work there uh, it was always just kind of held him off. Like, and you never know why they never actually say it, but it was his brother and his best friend running it. And his brother knew how to cook. He was very good at it, did his thing, but he wasn't a great business owner. Uh, and his best friend is a real knucklehead. It's got Richie. Um, so when he comes in, there's a lot of, a lot of, he has a lot of adversaries going on in this kitchen, going at him in this kitchen because everybody has been working there for a long period of time. He hires a brand new sous chef who had a failed catering company but she's very like brash and, and like kind of wants to run things like a real kitchen, just like him. So he's trying to almost indoctrinate all these people uh, into how the kitchen should work. He, he makes sure everybody calls each other chef, you know, he's doing his thing and it's really well done because it's so realistic to handle everything really well. If you've worked in a kitchen, you kind of, you get it, 
Uh, the drama of it is all in the kitchen. They may go do a catering or something like that, but it's the business that you're following here. It's not the only family drama there is, is between the brothers and their sister who own, own this place. And it's about this place. They don't get into the whole thing. So it's like 10 episodes, let's say half hour each of each episode. I finished it in like a day and a half. And I was in, I wanted more. I, I, it's got like a hundred percent of Rotten Tomatoes. So I'm hoping it's going to come back and, and be your first sequel. Uh, so mm. second season, I should say, but following their, their mishaps and everything kind of trying to get this kitchen together and make it a respectable place. And to see like how he's dealing with his brother's suicide. It's just, everything really meshes well together. The comedy hits on all the right uh, ways, but the drama hits all the right ways as well. Joe, uh, John Bernenthal from uh, walking dead, the Punisher, things like that. He plays the brother. So they'll do like flashbacks to him when the family was all together and stuff like that. So it's, it's really well done. And the cast of characters are realistic and, and a lot of fun to follow in this. Nice. All right. Basically, <laughs> Ryan plots all in. All right, it sounds, it sounds interesting. Um, and they're half, they, these are half hour episodes, you said? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So that's why you're able to blast through them so quickly. There's something about food related shows. What was the movie with John Favreau where he was a, a chef. food truck chef? Oh my yeah. God. That yeah. was, I, that was one of my favorites. Something about food. I love food. You know, Iron Chef. Yeah. They brought back Iron yeah. Chef on Netflix. I saw that. And uh, this one is like, if you liked Kitchen Confidential, the book or the series that they did for one series back in the day, uh, if you liked anything, Anthony Bourdain or Chef or anything like that, you're going to love this. My opinion is that these uh, cooking shows, anything food related, I think a lot of it depends on the quality of the photography. Like, uh, yeah. you know, like that chef with John Favreau, if you noticed, the photography was gorgeous in that movie. Gorgeous. So gorgeous. So, you know, I don't know. Is that, does Bear, Bear's got to have great photography? I, I did a show a while back about um, Samurai Gourmet. You may remember that, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those were half hour. Uh, it's a Japanese show. And it's uh, just beautiful photography. And uh, that, that really makes the show with food. So Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. All right. All right, that was Mick Manhattan and the Bear. Everyone seems to be talking about the Bear, so definitely check that one out. We got one more short and to the point recommendation, and then Street Gang: How We Got to Sesame Street. Howard Rosner is going to take us through a real in-depth chat on that amazing documentary. All right, but right now, dying laughing sounds sad, but it's really just about comedians not doing great on stage. How amazing would that be? Sal D'Amelio is going to take us through this one. Take it away, Sal. Appreciate All right, we're going to we're going to lighten things up with dying laughing. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is going to be real quick, guys. There's not much to this, but it's a, a very interesting documentary. It's a, a doc a documentary about just famous stand up comedians talking about their worst experiences on stage. Whether it was when they were starting out, some of them talked about bombing when they were even famous a little bit so it's just a very interesting documentary it was entered in the 2016 uh los angeles uh, film festival and um basically that's what it is i mean uh obviously me and bob that do a lot of stand-up here i know jeff does (laughs) one and a half shows a year on his uh, schedule but no i'm just kidding but uh and Jeff, you can chime in on this too. You've maybe Bob and Jeff real quick. Oh, did the 18 the years of comedy I did? Yeah. You did. <laughs> so, well, you never bombed though, Jeff. So yeah, you know, he, he never no bombed. So he, that's true. That's true. 
But uh, it's just. But I've seen cell bomb a lot. So I got <laughs> yes, plenty, I of, refer- plenty I, of reference material. I have. I've, I've performed in Iraq many times. And, uh, <laughs> but um, but, but hey. basically, it's just these comedians. It's a, it's ninety minutes of just some of the most famous comedians that you've loved. Just talk about their worst experiences on stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jerry Lewis is on there. Uh, Jerry, I know Jerry Lewis was alive then. And Literally every Jerry Lewis uh, <laughs> stage appearance is my worst experience. Watch, but go yeah. ahead. <laughs> but uh, he's on there. Obviously, Jerry Seinfeld's on there a lot, talking about uh, his early days. Uh, Sarah Silverman. Uh, she told the fun. I'm not going to tell every story that these guys told, but Sarah Silverman told a really good story where she was on stage one time at some New York club, and it was pretty packed. And she is just not getting a laugh at all. Nothing. Like literally nothing. Oh. And all of a sudden, one of the other comics, she didn't say who in the documentary, but all of a sudden you just heard <laughs> you know, like a, just a guy, somebody whistling in the back. And then, poof, you know, uh, and she said she heard that was the only thing the crowd heard. included. So just great stories like that from uh, Kevin Hart, uh, Russell Peters. Just a, it was really cool. Ninety minutes of this. They also show little clips of comedy clubs, um, some of the ones we've all performed at. Uh, us three. They showed uh, actually the funny stop, the one I'm going to be at this week at Cuyahoga Falls. Oh, look at that! They show Joey's comedy club in Livonia. They show obviously uh, Mark Ridley's. They show a bunch of obviously comic uh, the comedy store and all that with you know crowd shots, bartender shots, talking about some things and just uh. A really cool documentary. If you're into stand-up comedy and you kind of want to see uh, the other side of it, instead of comics talking about how great they are, these comics talk mm. about how uh, how they bombed. And it just, uh, as a comedian myself, and it just makes you kind of feel good hearing these basically multi-millionaire comedians talk about how their experiences on stage didn't always go well. So it's a great documentary. I highly recommend it if you like stand-up. I don't know how I missed it, Sal. I'm going to watch it. Yeah. This and you, oh, you can get it right on YouTube. So doesn't you don't have to stream it on a paying service. You can just watch it on YouTube. And uh, it's a great. I highly recommend it. I was, it went by quick. It's great. All right. so, I mean, you just okay? for, for everyone okay? listening, too, it's, uh, it's one of those things where it's more interesting to hear comics talk about bombing and the bad things that happen <laughs> than is. the good things. It's like life. None of the, all the train wreck stories are always better than uh, the good ones. Yeah. Way more people yeah. stop yeah. to watch a train wreck than they do to cheer someone on. Well, yeah, it's, uh, that's you know, true. Nobody wants to hear anybody talk about how much, how they won big at the poker table. They want to hear about their <laughs> yeah. horrible beat at the poker table. Yeah, no. exactly right. <laughs> nice. Oh, man. Uh, we're sick. Sick, sick, sick. All Speaking right. of Chris Rock, he just came out this weekend for the first time, publicly talked about the Oscars slap. Did he? Um, I didn't with hear Dave Chappelle. About that. Yeah, with, with Chappelle, yeah. Um, what did he say? He just said, look, you know, he, I'm not a victim, you know, stop. He's like, I could take a punch, you know, and just talked around it a little bit, joked about it. So, yeah, it's it's pretty wow. interesting. You got to look up the comments online. But oh, well. yeah, he did, did talk about it. Oh, that's cool. Um, well, yeah, he's allowed. He's allowed. Yeah, no, yeah. He he's, he's earned it. Yeah, he's earned it. He it's, it's good to have some perspective mm-hmm. of time, you know, not, rea- not reacting just to the incident. He's had time to actually ruminate on it and um, provide some good perspective. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you for that. And that's just a 90 minute documentary, right? Correct. Correct. 89 minutes, exactly. 89 mm-hmm. minutes. All right. If you don't All like right. 90, it's just under 90. 
All right, getting right to the point with Sal D'Amelio and Dying Laughing. Pulled from episode 82. We've already heard The Bear from episode 81. Now we're going back to episode 55. Howard Roser is going to take us through Street Gang, how we got to Sesame Street. Get ready for all the feels. Take it away, Roz. All right, let's move on to the next show. Street Gang, <laughs> how we got to Sesame Street. This actually looks sick. Fascinating. Yeah, this is an HBO Max documentary. I will just start out in the front by saying I really, really loved this movie. Very informative, really informative, but also emotional. I cried at one point. And look, Sesame Street started in 1969. So all of us on this show, or most of us at least on this show, we were raised on Sesame. We were the first generation raised on Sesame Street, truly. There's so many moments in the show where it's just clips and I went, oh my God, I remember that. It was just, it was so, the nostalgia of it was so strong. But it's also so informative about how important this show was. So I think a lot of people still connect Jim Henson and the Muppets as the creative voice of Sesame Street. And while he was a huge part of it from a creative standpoint, there were a couple of people that were more important. Really, the woman who championed the show was a woman named Joan Cooney, and she was a TV executive, and she was approached in 1966 by the Carnegie Institute about wanting to, they had done studies about the educational system, especially of inner city or low socioeconomic children, and how how far they were behind. Like one study that they that they talked about was when they hit kindergarten or first grade, at the start of the school year, they were three months behind kids from higher economic areas. By the end of that first year, they were a, year, a full year behind in reading, writing, and arithmetic. So the Carnegie Institute wanted to try and do something and TV had taken off. They came to her and said, do you think TV can make a difference? And she said, I don't, I don't know. She had approached the guy who became the primary director of the early seasons and executive producer, a guy named John Stone, who was the, the driving force behind the creative end of it. They did something that had never been done. They pulled together a mix of TV and comedy writers and educators and sat them down in the room to do focus groups and studies and talk about it. And that became what we now know as the Children's Television Workshop. That's what it was. And the educators actually, they showed this binder that was about yay thick that they didn't, they had to explain to the writers, like, we're not trying to teach counting numbers. Like, that's not what it is. We're trying to teach cognitive association or all these actual terms and then give examples to them of what it would mean to teach a kid that how you would do it, and then what it would, so that they could create this common language for creating the show. John Stone was cynical because he had only seen up to that point children's television shows that were there to sell something. Like they showed, you know, like Howdy Doody and, you know, Bozo the Clown. Like every segment was like, it's Ovaltine, kids. Tell your mom and dad to get you Ovaltine. They were there to entertain, but they weren't there to teach anything. So... That was the challenge of the show. And they didn't know how to do it. And then they worked over time to create that. The other thing was, then they had the ideas for the show. They knew kind of how they wanted to approach it. 
but they didn't know the setting. And John Stone happened to be watching shows that showed inner city and street activity. And he said, that's it. That's what it needs to be. It needs to be gritty and neighborhood and stuff that these kids can relate to. So that's where Sesame Street came from. They show the actual videotape that they used to pitch uh, and, and John Stone had known uh, Jim Henson and Jim Henson had been around forever. So he brought in Jim Henson. He thought the puppets, Muppets would be a great way to help get the message across. The first couple episodes that they did to focus groups, they only would do the Muppets episodes and then they would have all the episodes with the adults talking to the kids and the other things. And they noticed that the kids did not pay attention. They paid absolute attention to the Muppets. But when it was a, an adult talking to a kid, they tuned out. They said, okay, well, we have to have the Muppets be part of the activity with the adults at street level. And that's how they made that change. The show began airing in 1969. Oh, I should also add the other major behind the scenes name who, you know, when we talked about Get Back, I talked about how I was absolutely amazed at the ability for um, John Lennon or Paul McCartney George with I Me Mine after, you know, he watched the TV show, a movie the night before and writes I Me Mine, which is becomes a great song or, you know, Paul's just diddling on his guitar and in five minutes has the main chorus to get back. The man's name was Joe Raposo and he's who wrote the bulk of the songs on the show. Talked about writing one of probably the most iconic song from the show, It Ain't Easy Being Green with Kermit and like showed his writing process. It was like minutes that he sat down to write that song. And it's the genius level ability to be able to do that. The show began airing in 1969 and it had a huge grant from the Department of Education. And they spent a lot of that promoting this in markets. So then people knew it was coming. They talked about how it was something that had never been done before. And it instantaneously blew up to huge proportions, like amazing proportions to the point that celebrities were talking about it. They were on talk shows. By the end of the first year, they had Sesame Street Live where they were going around with a touring show. Amazing. One of the things they do talk about is in that first year, a huge controversy um, because the other thing about the show was not only groundbreaking in what they, how they were reaching kids and teaching kids to read, teaching kids to write, teaching kids the alphabet, multiplication tables, all those things. But it was, the show was a champion of social consciousness and the social revolution. There was no divination between race, gender. I mean, in 1969, that's crazy. And they did it so naturally. White kids and black kids on street level talking to the Muppets, laughing. And they didn't bring in actors for the kids. They brought just kids in to interact. And there was no, there was no concern. And it was so, so ahead of its time in doing that. Well, the state of Mississippi refused to run it on public education, on public broadcasting because of the integration issue. They didn't claim it was because of integration. There's a great interview with the head of uh, like the TV and public broadcasting. And he says, well, we just haven't had, um, we haven't had seen the want from our audience in the state of Mississippi to demand the show. If they demand it, we probably would do it. So privately owned TV stations decided that they would be the only privately owned stations in the country to run the show. And, and within a small period of time, the demand was so great that they started running it on PBS. So um, 
the documentary really focuses, it doesn't get too far into the history of the show. It's not that it, it talked more about how they continued to challenge tough subjects and how the show grew to just the proportions it was. One of the other moments that absolutely brought a tear to my eyes was one of the first really tough decisions they made on the show was when the man who played Mr. Hooper, he passed right. away. They originally were just going to say, yeah, he went on vacation, he moved to Florida, but they're like, that's just not honest. It's not honest. We can't do that. So really, really difficult. They wrote the episode. I didn't remember it until I saw the clips, but they did it through the lens of Big Bird, created the scene where Big Bird had draw, drawn all these pictures of all the humans on the show, Bob and Gordon and Maria and Susan. And they showed um, Big Bird giving the pictures to all of them and he wanted to give it to Mr. Hooper. And they tried to, ha they had to explain to him that Mr. Hooper's, he's dead. He said, well, he'll be coming back. I'm like, no. He's not. You're gone forever when you die. And, you know, it was so, I'm crying thinking about it. It was so honest and it was so real and endearing to teaching an important lesson to kids that you just didn't get otherwise. And they did it in such an earnest way that it was, um, it's, it's amazing. So they delve into the relationship between Jim Henson and Frank Oz, which is, it was amazing. They showed the two of them filming together and they were Ernie and Bert. I think I knew that, but I didn't remember that. I knew Frank Oz, I knew Jim Henson, Kermit and others. I knew Frank Oz did Grover, Cookie Monster and others, but I didn't know, I didn't know that was the case, that it was the two of them. And they talked about how, um, it was like a comedy. They were like a comedy team, mm -hmm. um, you know, like Martin and Lewis or something like that. And it was, it's great. So, um, again, it doesn't go, you know, it doesn't even get into like, I freely believe that there's, they have enough footage. I'm sure that there's probably a second documentary where they could go into, into the Elmo era because they don't really touch on any of that stuff. This is all like sixties and seventies era, maybe early eighties that they touch on, but there's so many characters that they just showed clips of that I totally forgot about. They talk about the racial implications of Roosevelt Franklin. Do you, I don't know if you remember Roosevelt Franklin. Yeah. Roosevelt Franklin was created by the first Gordon, who, by the way, Holly Robinson Pete was her, the actress was her father, was the original Gordon. And he left the show. He was a little more radical about black politics and was maybe a little, uh, wanted to be a little too aggressive in telling the mention, like there were several black organizations or black people who complained that Roosevelt Franklin was a little too heavy handed and maybe too stereotypical or creating a negative stereotype or feeding into a negative stereotype. So he left the show and was replaced. I mean, they showed all the Bob McGrath and uh, the woman that played Maria and Luis. And yeah, it, it, it's so good. If you were raised on Sesame Street, please go watch this. So I, I have a couple of questions, Howard. First yeah. off, did, did they talk at all about the competition with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Or was that brought up at all? They didn't. They mentioned there was a comment briefly show other shows focused on fantasy and they showed you know fantasy land with mr yeah. rogers and Got it. you know they said this this show was real these were real yeah. kids that were yeah. interacting with the adults it was great Go well the, the other question is uh did, did they talk at all about how ernie and bert the names coming from the movie it's a wonderful life i've always wanted to know if that was confirmed because ernie and um, bert were, the, were the cop and the cop and the taxi driver from it's a wonderful life and i just was curious if, if that had ever been confirmed in the documentary. 
I don't think they mentioned that. I don't remember that, but I don't think they mentioned it. Okay. Maybe, um, maybe not. So maybe it's it was really funny. They did show a bunch of, because, you know, it was a film show. It wasn't live. So there's some really funny clips of bloopers with the Muppets that are really funny. Shooting the shit about stuff and mess ups. And uh, it's really, really so good. And and again, heartwarming. It was literally a television altering show. I mean, it was. It created a genre that never existed and legitimately changed the lives of millions of kids. You know, Clearly, it changed Sal's life. Yeah. It changed totally. Sal's life. So a couple of things. And uh, it's a different documentary, but I watched one on Carol. Um, Big Brother. Carol, Carol's. Yeah. It's Carol Spinning. Yeah. Carol Spinning. And uh, when the Challenger exploded, there was a teacher on board, Christine McAuliffe. The original idea was to have him on the Challenger as Big Bird, but they couldn't get the costume to work with safety yeah, yeah. and stuff. So that didn't happen. Can you imagine if that had happened? Big yeah. Bird dies <laughs> in space. I don't think we'd ever have recovered from that. But here's an interesting <laughs> thing about Sesame Street also is, and uh, this is from an article in 2008, uh, when they came out on DVD, the early episodes of Sesame Street, which you're talking about, the 69, early 70s episodes. This is the warning that was on it. Volume one and volume two of Sesame Street. Sesame Street episodes are intended for grownups and may not suit the needs of today's preschool child. Mm. Yeah. And it's really life has changed in terms of uh, the old Sesame Streets are no longer suitable for children viewing. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they showed some. Scenes that they, like they had um, a recurring again. I didn't remember this until I saw it. And I'm like, holy shit! Now I totally remember it. They had a thing that was hosted by Cookie Monster called Monsterpiece Theater. The show was an absolutely dead-on copy of Masterpiece Theater, and it just it was you know the kid wouldn't know that that was designed for adults, and it was um, it, it was such a brilliant creation there were just other little things that i discovered in there like um the uh you remember the uh counting pinball machine one two three four five six seven eight nine ten <laughs> eleven twelve. that was the pointer sisters that did that oh my gosh sesame street had all the best stuff oh my god there were so many there's so many good um there's a clip at the end of the documentary to again showing how real it was. That's Paul Simon and a guitar doing me and Julio down by the schoolyard. And just one kid sitting on the stairs who's like clapping and singing her own lyric along with him. And it's just again, it's just pure. It's just so pure that it's just brilliant. So yeah, please, if you were in that era uh that we were I grew up at all on Sesame Street. Go watch this documentary. There's no way not to come out of it feeling more knowledge about the show as well as just purely happy from having seen it. All right. That was Street Gang. How we got to Sesame Street with Howard Rosner guiding us through that documentary. Sounds like a must watch along with The Bear and Dying Laughing. Sounds like we have presented you tons of great binge-watching suggestions. So here's what you got to do. You got a lot of homework. Grab your remote control. Find your favorite spot on your couch. Cross your own streams. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Crossing the Streams. Visit us on YouTube for full episodes. And catch us live every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. 
Now turn this off and go watch some TV. And don't forget to tell your family you'll be busy for a while.